This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast on this wonderfully beautiful dry season evening with me, my co-host, Mr. Peter Gowers. How are you, mate? I'm good, except you stole my intro, mate. I couldn't agree with you more. Had the dinner out last night. I was like, oh, how good is this? I don't want it freezing cold like I was whinging about last year, but just a nice little chill in the air. It's, it's good for a change, isn't it? It's just, in fact, I was actually frigid this morning when because uh, I left the door open and I didn't even have the fan on, mate. It's the first time. First time <laughs> this year. <laughs> well, I think um, if I heard it correctly, I heard on the radio today that we got down to 18 in the Greater Darwin area. Oh, mate, there is no way it was 18 degrees this morning. I'm going to tell you that it would have to have been 16 in Palmerston. All right, well. Um, yeah, and I reckon 16, yeah, is probably right on the money. Let's pay some respects to our friends in Catherine. 9.7. <laughs> That's why they get the good mangoes down there. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking as well, though, you wouldn't you wouldn't be there for quids in October, so you've got to give them uh, a little bit of a benefit this time of year. You do, you do. Well, mate, um, I have got another guest for us. Um, I thought you, know, you might This is a bit like fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, man, uh, we need to find someone for the podcast this week. Who shall we use? <laughs> <laughs> and you pick up the NT News and there's a story and you go, okay, who's that? Let's look her up on uh, LinkedIn. And that was this morning and this evening. I'm happy to introduce you uh, and our listeners to... Dr. Adele Sefton-Rouston. How are you, Adele, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Leon. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing really well. Yeah, welcome. So uh, we've had a few people from CDU. Uh, can you give us your title and what you do there? Sure. I'm Senior Lecturer in Literature and Creative Writing, and I've actually been at CDU oh, long time I'm, I'm coming up for long service leave which is wow. rewarding uh and before that i was i've been teaching academic literacies so a lot of our um first year students will come and learn how to write an essay and, and research and reference um through that unit uh but my my phd is in literary studies that's my love and i'm finally teaching in that area now um and doing right. some administrative stuff as well, so, yeah. So you're, you're also like co-dean or something I was reading here. Is that right? Yeah, or so... Um, Co-associate dean. In our College of Indigenous Futures Education and the Arts, uh, we have some subgroups, I suppose, or D-labs, and uh, one of the D-labs that I, I head up is the Human Arts Teaching Lab, and so I work with really cool arts lecturers in, you know, creative design and multimedia and philosophy. Please tell me what a D-Lab is. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that. Um, so a D-Lab is, um, it's a place that the lecturers uh, can can go, like it's our home base if you like, Um it's a sexy name for, you know, a, a school or, you know, um, where we can just share ideas, 
meet regularly. Okay. Collaborate, re- um, research together. It brings us, you know, together because otherwise we can get a little bit siloed. I think. Mm. You know, individual similar, discipline areas. You know, similar to what I would know a tutor group to be, or a, a homeroom group, or something like that, in real yeah. simplistic terms. Exactly, home group. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk all about that uh, and also the YouTube clip that you've put up there about encouraging people to um, enroll in an arts degree at CDU. Um, well, you have done your research. <laughs> Don't ask me how I did that today. i got to tell you. <laughs> um, Someone just got charged 800 bucks without a doubt. Oh, thanks, <laughs> You are possibly born in Victoria or you're from Victoria originally? Actually on the border. So oh, if you know Aubrey Wodonga, oh, yeah, yes. I'm an Aubrey girl. So oh. I would say New South Welshman through and through. As I like to call it, B104.9 territory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> B104.9, yeah, great it. station. <laughs> right, yeah, on the so Murray born River. in Aubrey. Right. Born and, in uh, Aubrey. <laughs> T- tell us about what it was like there and, you know, growing up in Aubrey. Aubrey, it's a beautiful place. As I said, yeah, it's on the Murray River. We have the Weir. Um, I was really lucky to to come from a multicultural family. Um, you know, my auntie uh, is Indigenous, so she's one of um, – she's a Murray woman, one of the first Murray women to get a, um anthropology degree from – um, ACU. So, and then I have, you know, Filipino aunties and Chinese and, um, and, uh, yeah. And then, you know, the, the British side as well. Um, and my great, great uncle Cleaver Bunton was the mayor of Albury for 30 years. Wow. I would not uh, have picked Albury to be a bastion of multiculturalism. I just completely missed the mark here. <laughs> Maybe it was just our family. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and his brother is Hayden Bunton, who won the Brownlow wow. Medal three okay. times in a row. So Jeepers. fairly um, well-known family, the Buntons, down down in Albury. So, uh, yeah. Well, you've ticked Pete. Well, you've tickled Pete's uh, funny bone <laughs> with the uh, with the uh, footy. So let's talk AFL then, shall we? No, okay. <laughs> You're a Lions fan, are you? I am indeed. Yep. <laughs> Good on you. Right. And so, okay, I've been through Albury Wodonga once in my life, driving from Sydney to Melbourne. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that does not count, Leon. No. Is that before or after the Hang on, uh, hang on. I actually stayed the, the night in Wodonga, okay? So don't give me too much grief, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just can't recall. Is there a lot of distance between the two towns? Not really, which is what's causing a lot of the COVID issues. Mm. And, oh. you know, some of my, my old friends are, haven't seen those on the other side for Mm. sometime during these lockdowns and they patrol the border, you know, I hear quite, quite uh, stringently. So, yeah, um, I mean, I lived in Aubrey, but I went to uni in Wodonga. So I just used to drive yeah. my little, my old Leland Mini, maybe 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. How many kilometres exactly is it? I'm thinking 30, Ooh. but it must be shorter than that. I reckon it might be a bit shorter than that, but Yeah. 
Is it a bit like Canberra and Queanbeyan? You know, it's sort of like merged into one now. You yes. <laughs> it doesn't end. Yeah, what's also interesting about it is that in in this COVID time, and not, I mean, not many people even knew this, but the Victorian government runs the Aubrey Hospital, so it's it's been really disjointed. And, and as Adele said, oh. I mean, they're basically twin towns, but never has it been a factor before. You just drive, you know, across the bridge, and there's there's been no restrictions. But since last year, and it's it's been quite trying for a lot of people. Oh who work in one and live in the other or vice versa. And, and the river, is is the river flowing? I mean, I know it might be a stupid question, but is it, is it work? Yeah, yeah. There's like it runs a, all the way to Adelaide. Right. <laughs> well, I just, you know, you just hear all these things about the Murray River and how they've oh, you know, okay. completely wrecked it. And oh, uh, it's, like Murray-Darling Basin. Murray, darling, yeah. 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 That's the other end. It's the other end, is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, right. And, okay, so um, went to uni in, in Wodonga, but according to your little CV here, that was Latrobe, is that right? That's right, yeah. So, so, they, <laughs> yeah. so they've got a campus in Wodonga then, do they? They do, yeah. My, um, my goal was always to go to Canberra and study. Uh, you know, it wasn't too far from Aubrey and they had like a good primary education course there that I was interested in. Um, but I ended up getting a scholarship at um, Latrobe Wodonga. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm first in family to go to university. So, um, you know, from a very working class family. And so the scholarship was really helpful actually, because it meant I could keep my little car on the road and yeah. So I decided to do an arts degree at Wodonga, <laughs> not really knowing what is this arts degree about? And uh, someone said to me, oh, it's just like high school. You just get to pick the subjects that you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're making me feel um, feel bad. We've had, Pete and I have had lots of conversations on this podcast about university. And when I went to university, uh, getting an arts degree was like, um, I think I've said this story on the, on the podcast, but no, and forgive mm. me if I have, Pete, but you go into the engineering faculty and it was like above the toilet roll, art, arts degree, take one, you know? <gasps> that, that, that was the mentality, I mm. want to tell you. And now looking back, Adele, how absolutely and utterly wrong that was. <laughs> I just feel incredibly... Uh, undereducated for not having done an arts degree, I have to tell you. Well, I mean, yeah, it's been interesting since the fees have gone up mm. significantly too, uh, yet we haven't lost students. Our numbers are going up, so I'm telling everyone now that arts is the boutique course to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I, I don't know why it had such a bad name back in the 80s. It's probably because of Wall Street, I think. But uh, Yeah, right. Um, do, do you think it's possibly an East Coast versus West Coast thing too, Leon? Because, I mean, not that I completed it, but I started an arts degree. And it, it very much where I came from, it was considered a stepping stone potentially to something else. Like I have a lot of friends that started with arts and ended up all over the place in, in different sorts of degrees. I don't know. I just think it was 
it was like, why would you do it? Because what, what is it, what's there at the end of it? Whereas, you know, with a science degree, you could at least say, well, you know, are you a chemist or biochemist or physicist mm. or something like that. Mm. But what with an arts degree, what are you? You know, if you're doing economics, well, you might as well go and do an economics degree, but. You're the, you're the you know? co-dean of a D-lab, mate. <laughs> but you know like now when you look back on when i look back on my life and I look at an arts degree and i think to myself wait i would have loved i probably wasn't mature enough though that's the problem straight out of high school well you were not, graffitiing on toilet doors so yeah, not, <laughs> oh it wasn't me that did that but it was the, it was in the engineering faculty but you know it's like philosophy history all those things that are just so incredibly interesting now were not interesting when I was 17 or 18 years old. But obviously, Adele, it was for you. It was. Uh, I fell in love with literature um, and I'm going to concede something here and say I never really liked books before I went to uni. Mm. Um, you know, I, I did English in year 12 and I, I did quite well, but I just read the books that I had had to Mm. for the class um and so yeah that really did change my trajectory um doing the arts degree because i went from becoming a primary school teacher to then going on and doing a phd in literary studies because i felt like i found my passion and a way to make meaning in the world through texts which was incredibly rich and new and exciting for me as a young person Mm. So how did you so, – so you finished your arts degree and I can see you did you, you got honours in that, so you did very well. You've <laughs> <laughs> actually got uh, your certificate here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you decided to go straight into teaching, did you, after that? What? Yeah, I did. I, uh, I had to – because Wodonga didn't offer the postgrad courses, so I had to go to Melbourne. Latrobe, Melbourne, to do the honours year. So I was the first person from the regional campus to head down to Bundura and mm-hmm. um, do this honours year. And uh, I just felt like the hick from the country. <laughs> <laughs> and I just you remember going to the library in Bundura for the first time. It's like three levels. And it's like, how do you find anything? And it was all paper journals as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. you looked something up on the computer and then you had to go and find that journal and very different. Um, yeah, so I moved out of Albury-Wodonga and headed to Melbourne to do the honours year and then the, the dip ed, I, I still really wanted to be a teacher and I knew that, you know, I had to make money at some stage. So, um, so uh, yeah, so I, I taught for a couple of years in, in Melbourne. Your dip ed was, this was in secondary education though, it was, but you said you are a primary school teacher. Yeah, I just... Um, with the further study through the arts degree, I just found I I needed to keep exploring at that that higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really, yeah, it just took me on a different direction um, to work with now adults um, as well, which I wouldn't have anticipated either. And you said you were the first uh, of your family to go to uni. What, did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I'm the oldest of four. Right. And my brother and sister are twins, and then I have a younger sister as well. Yeah. And they're still back in Albury? 
No, my sister's in Cairns um, and my other sister's on the Gold Coast. My brother's in Glen Innes. So the family's, you know, a lot more dispersed now. Yeah. Um, and I suppose being first in family, no one really related to mm. why I would study. And it was like this whole other world that no one in my family understood and kind of saw it as not a waste of time, but they didn't understand, you know, why you would commit so many years of your life without earning an income. That's really interesting. Hmm. So you finally did obviously start earning an income. Where did you start teaching? Yeah, well, I couldn't play football, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, yes, my first teaching job was at St. Columbus in um, Essendon, an all-girls school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Straight into and the that, private schools, eh? Pardon? Straight into private school. Well, yeah, you know, when I studied at uh, the she Catholic She went to get Union. paid, mate. She said that. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I I just was lucky enough to get a one-year contract and it was so competitive for graduates at that stage. I think I applied for 30 jobs and finally landed one at St. Columbus um, a week before the school year started and they had this great dance program and, and, you know, I I loved dance. And then the school went on to win the Rockestead for that year, uh, which was part of my co-curricular load. So I had a lot of fun. That yeah. first time, not just teaching, but being, you know, part of that creative arts culture. Um, that what year were you teaching? Mostly year nine. Um, okay. My home group then was just as cool as my home group now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, how, how, so uh, where did that take you? Were you there for a number of years? <clears throat> No, just, just the one year, and then I went to their sister school in Eltham, um, Catholic Ladies College, so stayed in that system, and um, that was another great turning point for me, really, because uh, I became the social justice coordinator at the school, and so the school was you know, a big advocate for having social impact and um, influencing the students in a way so they would... Um, go out into the community and and create change. And so I think that really resonated with me and lit a fire as well that's continued to burn um, in terms of social justice work. And uh, we had this amazing opportunity to uh, go into the Pitanjara lands with some Year 9 students uh, and also from St Columbus as well. So we had a, a group of 20, 20 girls, 10 from St. Columbus, 10 from um, Catholic Ladies College, and we spent 10 days camping in the Pitanjara lands and were just so incredibly lucky to visit sacred sites and travel song circles and, you know, walk through salt lakes and see artwork on, on top of um, caves that were you know, 50,000 years old and remember thinking, you know, the Sistine Chapel is spectacular, but this is something else. Mm. <clears throat> um, and so that was a, a nice alignment f- for me as well, coming from St. Columbus and knowing the girls on that trip. And because and, we camped rough, we were <laughs> just in swags in the desert. Uh, and one night we <clears throat> uh, got woken up by one of the oldest staff members and she was like, quick, get up, move your swags now. 
and it was, you know, middle of the night and uh, we, we just did as she said and then a stampede of brumbies came straight through uh-huh. this dry riverbed where we were camping. Wow. And she'd woke up just in time to, to realise they were getting ready to stampede. Is that the word? <laughs> mm. She, she recognised the, the sounds? Yeah. Gee. Yeah, so that was um, Thank God really for the special. night shift, hey? Pardon? Thank God for the night shift. Oh, yeah. Jeez. We always need that one person that just sleeps lightly. Who <laughs> <laughs> can recognise a stampede in their sleep. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess from that experience, I returned to Melbourne with all the fences and high-rises and skies where you can't see the stars and went, oh, I'd love to get back to the Territory and and just explore Get back to the territory, as in... After that, yeah, excursion, you know, um, but... And and so where is Pitinjara, by the way? It kind of stretches down through, like, NT, South Australia. I don't know. I I should have done my research before this interview. (laughs) 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 Um, Right, so so you... So your first uh, exposure to the territory was was camping in well, well basically the Northern Territory South Australian border areas, mm. right? And that kind of stoked uh, an interest in Indigenous culture. Is that what what drew you to the territory, or something else? Yeah, I just um, became more and more interested in Indigenous education and and the synergies between um, land and sovereignty and history and and how that all worked within this this framework that we call education, mm. um, which I only really <clears throat> have only known you know, all my life. I think I'm one of the most institutionalised people there are. I've never left school. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I'm looking because you finished your diploma in education in 06 and then you straight away started a PhD in literary studies. So you were, you, you, you were doing your PhD while you were teaching. I was, and I, ha- I took um, Alexis Wright's Carpenteria along with me on that trip, and it's stained with beautiful earth um, patterns on the front and back covers. So I, I just wow. I cherish that text because it came with me um, and it, it really did locate me in stories of Indigenous sovereignty and place and spirituality that I, I still, you know, really love and learning more and more about. So talk to us about your PhD, literary studies. What does that actually mean? So literary studies is you know, the study of texts to understand society and culture. And it's, it's an important discipline because, well, <clears throat> it involves imagination, which some of the other disciplines don't necessarily. And so to explore social, cultural, political problems through texts creates imaginary possibilities mm. for change, um, alternate realities. And um, Pete, hello. just a segue here. Mm. This is the reason why the only time I smelt dope when I was at UWA <laughs> was when I walked through the arts faculty. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're allowed to imagine things. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you never inhaled, right? 
<laughs> so that's why you were in the toilets. <laughs> so the arts department seeming a lot more necessary than before. <laughs> so um, what was your PhD actually in? I was looking at <clears throat> Australian writing um, from 1990 up until 2010 called during the, the reconciliation debates. And okay. so, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of people walking over Sydney Harbour Bridge during that time um, for Reconciliation Week. We had, you know, um, Paul Keating's Redfern speech and there were things happening politically, but I really wanted to explore what was happening in the literature and mm -hmm. see, you know, what were the authors imagining um, in terms of our race relations and where the country was going. Was reconciliation even possible? Was it really... <clears throat> just a pipe dream. Um, and so I spent six years reading everything that I could on reconciliation in Australian literature and uh, I'm actually publishing it as a book this year. Oh, wow. With what, was the title, what was the title of your thesis? The title of the thesis is slightly different to the title of the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just slightly, but... Um, yeah, you want to know what the title of the thesis is? Yeah, I do, because they're generally like about 50, 50 words long normally, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, okay. Um, polities and polemics, a place for reconciliation in Australian literature. Mm. Polity and polemics. Can yeah, you we like define... to throw some fancy words in the 50-word uh, titles too. Sounds yeah. Good. <laughs> and so what does polity mean? Polity is like the people's civilization, community, okay. political group. And polemics? Um, a polemical work is like, you know, something that's creative, but it's also political. It's a statement. Right. It's... Um, meant to have uh, social, you know. And so when you were examined on the thesis, how did you go? Well, you obviously passed. <laughs> got it. It was um, grueling because, you know, there were superstars that ended up, you know, examining the thesis and, I mean, it was just an honour to even have them read the work mm. and so to pass was a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne Brewster was one of my examiners and um, she works over in uh, Queensland and a university over there and, um, yeah, her, her nephew is in Darwin, so still okay. try and get Anne Brewster over here too for maybe the Writers' Festival or something like that. So I, I had to skip through the guts of it, but I'm intrigued by one of the things you said before. Is reconciliation possible? Well, when we think about the theme for Reconciliation Week this year, you know, it is about action. Mm. And while, you know, literature explores a lot of the conceptual understandings of it, um, I was really interested in, in, you know, what is the effect of reading about reconciliation and, and can it move your position mm. to care a little bit more about our race relations or is it just another story? Um, but I think to have legal and political change without 
always trying to better our relationship seems like non-conducive to me. Okay. Um, okay. Counterproductive, if you like, you know. Mm. We can create political change, but if really we're not moving closer to one another in a relational sense, then. But you know, that's my opinion. I, I read this this meme the other day, um, and it said, you know, not everyone needs to be in a relationship to be happy. Sometimes mm. we just want our land back. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, so that's that got me thinking too about well you know, what does sovereignty mean if we don't actually have a change of heart to accompany that? That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That's really interesting because we've had, you know, um, Adele, we're up to, I don't know, episode 230-something of this podcast. We have had plenty of people on this podcast talking about Indigenous issues. Uh, some of them have been teachers, in fact, uh, who have worked in country, um, who have walked away thinking, oh, my goodness, there's, there's no catching up here, you know. It's just like it's a hopeless situation. Um, you're obviously coming from it from a different perspective. Um, I don't know. I won't, I won't speak for Pete, but for me, I don't have a lot of uh, experience in this area. Uh, I only know what I read and watch. And I wonder what you mean when you, for example, I wonder what that meme means in, in practice because what does it mean, give me my land back? What, what, I don't even know what that actually means as a practical thing. What does that mean? I guess it, to me it's a post-Marbo statement, um, which points to the fact that, you know, we're not done yet that even though we, we do have land title with some places around Australia, you know, um, to still have mining companies blowing up sacred sites would imply to me that, you know, we just want our land back still stands, you know, to get the land back uh, and have it destroyed or not properly cared for by everyone who who belongs to that place means that the struggle continues. Hmm. So that's a, that, that's a very poignant, you know, um, uh, story. I look at more practical things, Adele. I look at things like you know some of the um, some of the uh, Aboriginal communities around the territory and, and how, how dispersed they are. In fact, some of the reports that you read, you know, it's, it's so seriously dispersed as in you know, completely in the middle of nowhere. And I see a lot of work being done, or, or always not enough, but a lot of work being done uh, building houses and, and putting infrastructure into the, the, these communities. Um, you know, a lot of criticism about how much is done, how well it's done, how much waste there is and all that. And, I, you know, I'm not taking anything away from those debates. But Pete and I have often often spoke about, you know, with each other about what does the end look like with this? You know, what does it look like? I mean, can you have economically um, sustainable 
housing and infrastructure and all that sort of stuff in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and is that what reconciliation looks like? I mean, I, I don't, I'm asking these questions because I really don't know. Because in my mind, the only way um, Aboriginal people are going to um, <clears throat> uh, get on an equal footing with the rest of Australia, and I could be, you know, completely, and I don't mean to be politically incorrect or anything like that, just mean to say what I, what I feel and think, is to get, a, to get a Western education and to understand how we all think. Now, we have had people on this podcast that completely disagree with that and say, no, there's no need. You know, we have a completely different education out there. Uh, we don't have the same values. We don't have the same inclinations. We don't have the same, you know, all those sort of things. But there's a, there's a clash, and I, I don't know how you reconcile, you know, Come back, coming back to the word of reconciliation. I don't know how you fix that. Yeah, I guess it's a, a way of looking at um, the issue through neoliberalism and as an economic issue, and I, I I'm not an economist because you know I did an arts degree, but um, <laughs> I suppose I look through I look at issues through texts, and so you know to go back to Alexis Wright's Carpenteria and the way that she constructs that world where the characters are incredibly poor but their understanding of country as who they are makes them incredibly rich and there is this level of resistance in living in the town camps in which they do like it is about resisting assimilation to western values to a western is that right economic system that's, that's my interpretation. I've never, I've never heard that before. So, so you're saying that the reason why the town camps, or at least some of them, are in the state that they are, a state of disrepair and and all that sort of stuff, is because there's resistance to wanting to assimilate. I'm not saying that is the reason. I'm just saying that that is what is portrayed for me in Alexis Wright's imaginary world. Um, <laughs> and to look at you know very different cultures and, um, yeah, expect that we're all going to conform in, in the same way, I think, is a little too, you know, simplistic of you to, to think that's going to be easy. Hmm. Mm. So rewind. Uh, you obviously landed in Darwin at some point in time. Uh, how did you get from Pitjantjara <laughs> to Darwin? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of serendipitous because I got back from Pitjantjara, and um, my partner at the time um, said to me, "You know, I need a change from Melbourne. Do you want to go to Brisbane or Darwin?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, this ex excursion that I've been for, for, been on is just incredibly like like my heart is drawn to Darwin." And then that within that week, there was an ad in the paper of Melbourne. Um, the principal of Camilda was Camilda at the time uh -huh. um, was coming to Melbourne, and he wanted to meet with anyone who was interested in a job. Um, and, wow. and he would do this every year, apparently, book himself into a motel room in the city and interview potential candidates for positions up here because there was such a high turnover of staff. So, mm. 
So I met with him and I said, yeah, I've just come back from Pitinjara lands and um, I'm coming whether you employ me or not. Mm. So, uh, yeah, within a, a couple of months I had a job to start that following year teaching um, Indigenous borders English and, and SOS. Uh, and you, you, you said your partner um, was wanting to leave Melbourne to go to either Brisbane or Darwin. What was the – what drove that? Such an interesting Brisbane or Darwin, the two both quite randomly different <laughs> different cities. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wanted to go to Alice Springs, but uh, his argument was he needs water and he needs to be able to fish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he must be loving Darwin then. <laughs> yep, he's still here too. <laughs> right. And, and so, Comilda, uh, you, you enjoyed that time there? I did. I, I learned a lot, um, not only in terms of my pedagogy, um, but, I mean, yeah, just the relationships that I built with some of the, the people there and the students. Um, I just always cherish cherish that. Um, and that, and the students taught me more than uh, I think, you know, I, I could ever teach them in terms of, you know, culture and, and, and what to value and, um, yeah, I, you know, tried to introduce them to the, a world that I loved of literature and, you know, seeing just how, how different the way that we can think culturally and um, when you introduce students to a book for the first time, you take them to that very um, visual baseline. It's like what's on the front cover. Mm. And I remember one group I was teaching talking about um, a book published by Penguin and um, it was, you know, a beautiful graphic cover and I said, you know, what do you see? And one of the students put their hand up and said, well, I see the bird and the bird was tiny. Hmm. It was just the penguin symbol on hmm. the cover of the book. Um, and so then we had to talk about, you know, what is a publisher yeah, um, and that type of thing. But the same was, you know, walking around the, the schoolyard with the kids, they could just pick like that bird in the tree, just something that I would have overlooked mm. in my busy working day. So was that experience um, fulfilling from, from that perspective? I mean, if you're showing students a book for the first time and they're discovering it, was there buy-in from that point of view? And was it, a, like I say, a, a, you know, a positive experience overall? Yeah, it really was. Um, I mean, it was difficult learning about some of the hardships of the students and that they would have to often leave um, in the middle of the school term to attend to um, funerals. That was probably one of the most heartbreaking things, that mm. death was such a um, regular occurrence in their life and that that's mm. something through my, my own, um, you know, white privilege that I haven't had to contend with. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, um, I could, I, I still rely on things that I've, I learned from that experience in terms of my teaching mm. now and how to engage students from diverse backgrounds and, and who speak other languages um, and just the way in which we have to be flexible um, to get the buy-in, 
yeah. from the students because, you know, um, we attract all sorts of students to the arts degrees. Yeah. <laughs> Some don't smoke dope. <laughs> 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 yeah. could, could you give us an example of that? I, I'd be really interested to, you know, understand exactly that fact. You know, you've got different, I guess, languages, different religions, different belief systems. What, what, what sort of examples could you give us as to how you get a student to buy into something like that? I think particularly at Camilda it was relationship first and making the classroom a, a place where everything was relational and we learned through sharing um, and creating a safe space where there was no, you know, silly answers and that everyone's point of view was valid and, the, and that their experience would be validated and that we could all learn from each other um, in that space through our different mm. worldviews. Yeah. Um, w- was the student disappointed to find out the penguin wasn't in the book? <laughs> um, that's a good question, yeah. It's very rhetorical too. <laughs> Correct. So from yeah. there to you, you drifted into CDU somehow. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, I was doing my PhD at the time. Um, and so, you know, teaching at Camilda really helped inform parts of that as well as I could see the way that storytelling was being received by the students as well through teaching of the text. And, um, yeah, I, I just sent CDU my resume one day and they needed a tutor to take on a casual group. So uh, I did that and started off just marking and casual contract. And then, um, yeah, I was taking a while to get the thesis finished and it had to be done. So I took a year's leave without pay at Camilda and I thought, no, I'm just going to do it. I'll do relief teaching one or two days a week. And uh, I was over at Bathurst Island Xavier College over there. So I'd fly over and do relief teaching one or two days a week while I hammered out this 100,000-word thesis in that time. And, um, yeah, and then someone left at CDU and they needed me in more capacity and, uh, yeah, why not? I've kind of got the ticket now. (laughs) So it was a natural progression in that sense. Um, But I was on casual contracts for a long time, which is – typical of our our university system uh, in Australia. But it kind of worked for me because, um, you know, I went on to have two kids and so working casually in between having breaks in between contracts wasn't too bad in that Mm. sense. But, you know, other people certainly doesn't suit. Um, What's it like, um, you know, being a mum here in Darwin away from obviously your extended family? And I take it you don't have any other family up here. Uh, did, did you find it a bit of a challenge raising children in that environment? It was, and it wasn't. Um, we're kind of all in the same boat as well. We're f- a lot of us are from somebody, somewhere else. And so that typical notion of, you know, the orphan Christmas became the orphan fam- um, mother's group. Mm. And, um, yeah, I started doing those prenatal yoga classes with my first hmm. pregnancy. That's when everything is still quite peaceful and, and you think it's going to be a great experience. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I didn't have a car 
at the time because I sold it so I could survive financially while I was <laughs> studying to do my PhD. <laughs> so I was riding the buses to save save coin. Um, and so I caught the bus to this prenatal class and it was getting dark and I, and there was a lovely lady in the group and, and I said, and uh, I said, oh, do you, you obviously live in Palmerston? And she said, yeah, I live in Rosebury. I can give you a lift home if you like. And I thought, oh, God bless you. <laughs> um, she's getting quite pregnant at this stage. And uh, yeah, so we're driving along and she's like, so where do you live in Rosebury? Yep. Up around this corner, turn left here, right here. And she and I said, yep, this is my street here. And she goes, that's my street. <laughs> <laughs> and so it turned out that we lived three doors down from each other wow. and, and um, yeah, spent the first couple of years, you know, really depending on each other because her partner was in the army and was doing um, a stint in Afghanistan at that stage. And, and uh, yeah, my, my kid's father was um, also working remote. So we had a really in- interdependent friendship, which, which was beautiful and another, yeah, serendipitous time in my life. Mm. And did you, how did you cope with the, the, the tropical weather versus the, <laughs> the beautiful Melbourne winters? <laughs> oh, that first wet season, like, you just have to go, you, you have to go through it, you know. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You just got to go through it. And once you've survived that, like, I just, yeah, seemed to be climatized after that. But I remember sweating in places I've never sweated before. <laughs> like you blink and your eyelids are sweating. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, are my ears sweating? <laughs> no, it's melting wax. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I, I can't remember. You know, I came up to Darwin in 1990 in January. I, I, I just loved it from the day I arrived, you know. It was I didn't. I, I don't remember the heat. Mm. I just remember that the, the tropical rain, you know, mm. and it just so reminded me of Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, and, and look, but uh, you know, I mean, even today, I mean, what an amazing, you know, pe- day we've had. Like, was um, it were, were people wearing jumpers? Because I didn't get out of the house today, Pete. Were there jumpers on? Well, <laughs> I seem to work in a building that uh, is air conditioned within an inch of its life, so we've all got jumpers in the office. Um, I can't say I specifically noticed people were rugged up, but, of course, it's kind of the first day that everybody popped back into society after last week. So what I did notice was the the really great uh, use of face masks and everybody being really courteous, you know, with taking lifts and things like that. but, you know, I had a long sleeve and, and long sleeve shirt on. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't yeah. get to 30. So, you, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? It didn't get to 30 today? Uh, oh. No. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. I don't know. That mask, though, made me re- sweat in places I forgot to. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that feeling, though. I, I was staying with a friend in the first year or so um, when I got here, and I was waiting for someone to pick me up. And I was sitting on a milk crate waiting in the carport for someone to collect me. And I hadn't moved in about 10 minutes. And I just remember thinking, I haven't moved and yet I'm still sweating as though I've just mm. got out of the shower. It was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the joys of Darwin. Now you're a Fulbright scholar, Dell. <laughs> hey, when did that happen? Oh, I, uh, I heard the news late last year. 
Um, so I've known for a little while, but uh, yeah, the NT News did a, a great article today, which yeah. has now announced it um, to the to the community. So I'm really honoured to represent the community, the NT, um, with a Fulbright scholarship, and uh, I'm going to be off to Alabama. Wow. Hopefully in January and um, teaching in prison system over there. Wow. We must get you back on when you get back. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> that would be an amazing story. Now, Pete has forgotten to ask you what a Fulbright scholarship is. And that was next. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, my first thought was uh, guaranteed Adele's pay rate just went up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, the Fulbright is its a prestigious award and I did apply for it back in 2018 and wasn't successful. And I've learned a lot through the process of reapplying and um, I'm really grateful that the second time around I've been successful in the process to collaborate with, you know, international masterminds in prison education and and learn new things, new knowledge, new ways of doing prison education and, and bring it back and see what we can do here. So that that's what it does? It it's, um, specialises in prison education? Uh, my particular um, project does. So uh, with the okay. Fulbright, you can the, – the aim is to um, create partnerships with the US yeah. and um, – you know, collaborations through international research through the Fulbright um, Scholarship. And so the the Fulbright's named after um, Senator Fulbright, who sold a whole heap of um, armistice after the war and had, a, had well, these phenomenal funds that he could then, you know, create this pos- the possibilities for international collaboration mm. through the funds. So... So education in prisons, um, what specifically will you be going to do? Because this would be a really fascinating area, I'd imagine. Yeah, so um, through some of my literary research, I was looking at how authors like Kim Scott and Tony Birch were writing about prisons and what were the possibilities for reform through stories and what and what authors were imagining and so um after the uh 60 minute expose on dondale in 2016 Mm. i thought about how a program teaching creative writing in a prison might actually you know contribute to the types of reform that we need particularly for kids um to have a second chance education um and so um, that led me to explore prison graffiti yep. um, because, you know, as an art student, I, I had to grow up really having to tackle slander through graffiti. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm resilient in the space. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, jokes aside, you know, what we can learn from even the isolation cell that um, Dylan Boller spent um, a lot of time that that shouldn't have happened, you know, and and there's a scene on 60 Minutes where he's engraving his name into the cell. So, you know, um, through the project, I'm working with an organisational psychologist at the uni 
um, and there's this um, theory called the signature effect. So you can look at the ways that people sign their name, where they sign it, how frequently to gather their or measure their well-being and how much duress they're under. Mm. And so the creative writing program that I've been running with Sector 4 and the women in Darwin Correctional Centre is through the theme of graffiti and street art. And so we're exploring how people use graffiti and, and street art in an activist way to express themselves when they're under immense stress, when they want to um, get their message out to the world, to change the world, to free themselves in some way. Um, and through that project, we we're really fortunate to get permission to paint some murals in Sector 4 so the women could then put their ideas and their words and, and artwork onto the wall in the prison. Um, for NAIDOC week, the last couple of years, we've, we've done it particularly for NAIDOC week and, and painted to the theme. Um, and where the murals are in, in, in Darwin Correctional Centre is, is opposite the high security section of the prison. And so the women who are in there 23 hours a day can see the murals. Mm. Um, and so for me, prison education is about, is, is a reminder that, you know, people are going to be released. 98% of people who, who serve time are released back into the community. So how do we provide uh, a service where people are re-entering the community more educated, more literate, um, tools to be creative, think critically, um, and to become the authors of their own life in a way that they perhaps didn't think was possible mm. beforehand. Is there enough of a sample size to show that that is the one of the methods to get success against reoffending for example my particular research project the sample size is quite small only because we were working with um you know groups of 8 to 12 mm. women at a time um but you know we it's been 2 years um so the sample size is growing and now i can take the same surveys over to the us yeah, and and have a much bigger sample size as well to get um, reflections from from the students who are incarcerated mm. and their experience as well, and and use that to to weigh out well what's happening here, um, how is the program influencing self esteem, self worth, yeah. um, future clarity, these types of things that perhaps other more punitive um, measures or, or activities. Mm. And these are under eighteens, are they, Adele? Uh, no, these are, um, are women that I've been working with in, in um, Darwin, um, but I will have the opportunity to to work with with children when I'm in the states. Okay, and and, and is it a similar type of? Um, I mean, and I, I could be completely um, on the wrong path here, but I'm presuming that it's going to be predominantly African Americans in the prison system in Alabama. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so okay. down in, in the deep south, as they say. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's interesting about Alabama is, uh, you know, twenty so years ago they had the Jim Crow laws, um, which led to a, a lot of incarceration of um, of black people. And similarly, in the NT, around the same time, we had the three strikes and you're in. Right. Um, and so it's it's going to be interesting to see. Well, how far have they come? Hmm with their, you know, more 
you know, um, punitive measures and, and have they been able to turn anything around through education? Yeah. Uh, how long will you spend there? I'll be there for 12 weeks. Yep. Um, so, you know, most of summer semester. Mm, what an experience. And, uh, yeah, I'll, ha- I'll have a chance to um, get into the archives too with my host and, and look at some of the history as well of the town in terms of its Which town is that? Is it Montgomery or Birmingham? Where are you going to be? Uh, Auburn. Where the heck is that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a Uh-oh. university town. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You got me before with the geography question. <laughs> <laughs> Which one was that? <laughs> the Pinjara. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we often get a geography like. lesson from Leon when uh, someone mentions somewhere he hasn't heard of. Mm-hmm. Well, mm. you know, I'm always have you been to the US before, Adele? I have, and, and strangely, um, mm. the Americans find this so weird that I've been to the 49th and 50th states, which apparently only Americans ever dream of. So I've been uh, to Alaska and Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. wow. and, and New York. But, right. uh, wow. but Alabama will be, will be um, yeah, special too. I imagine, yeah. A real eye-opener. You talked about the Jim Crow laws. I mean, they that was 1890s, that was post-Civil War, but you're saying they still exist in the Deep South, do they? Oh, like I think um, more like on a conceptual level, you know, we bequeath our history. It becomes internalised um, in a sense. And so, you know, the conversation that I had with my host may not have, necessarily been about the the practical implication of the laws but you know she said you know what's happening in the nt sounds like the jim crow laws so yeah mm. my goodness that is um, in the middle of nowhere really <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere between the nt and south australia equivalent. <laughs> i can tell you right now pete yep you could probably jump in a car and drive i don't know 20k out of town not even and yeah. could run into a Klansman, I suspect. Twenty <laughs> <laughs> cars. I've, seen, I've seen these documentaries. You know, I've seen <laughs> these documentaries where they where they drive down these sort of you know these back uh, country roads, mm, mm, mm. Yeah. and it is we're talking Forrest Gump country here, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love your fact checking. Really do. Yeah. Uh, uh, interesting. That yeah, look, interesting. it'll be um, my biggest excursion yet, put it that way. Yeah, I bet. Gosh. <laughs> and who's going to look after the kids? Are you taking them with you? Uh, look, initially I'd planned to, and the Fulbright's really generous in that sense where you can take dependents. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, my kids are 10 and 7, so it's a long flight. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, I just, it's not safe for either um, with COVID times. And um, so I've told them Disneyland's closed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a technicality, but I'll, I'll let you get away with that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just think they'll be safer here, not interrupted with their school school yeah. year. But I mean, it, it's going to be a big challenge for me to, to leave them behind and it will be the longest that I've spent without them. But, um, you know, I see it as, as, something to contribute to the family yeah. and experience, you know, that they'll also get to benefit from through learning what I learn. Mm. 
Well, we wish you all the best with that, Adele. And look, one of the questions that I was going to ask you right at the beginning, and I, I know that the first communication I had with you, I misspelled your name, and I'm sure millions do. <laughs> What's with the double L? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe my parents were hippies or something. <laughs> <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of makes sense with the pronunciation, though, doesn't it? When you look at it, 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 it comes out as it should, whereas uh, Adele's namesake... You, you could probably say that in a number of different ways based on how it's spelled. Mm. Yeah, I think its origins is in French. Right. Okay. Yep. Um, we don't question the French, Leon. No. <laughs> well, it's been really interesting talking to you, Adele, and getting to know you, and we wish you all the best with this Fulbright Scholarship. Um, you know, anything to do with improving uh, the relationship with uh, um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians is always going to be a good thing. Um, I think anything to do mm. with helping uh, Indigenous Australians get a le- getting a leg up is is always a good thing. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm deeply conflicted by how that that is to be achieved mm. <laughs> based yeah. on the myriad of conversations that we've had on this podcast. I'm sure. Mm. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, what I have learned about reconciliation, that perhaps that can be applied to justice reform and we can take a reconciliatory approach mm. to the mm. way that we we um, manage people who may be suffering from domestic violence, poverty, um, yeah. lack mm. of education, so... And you're still in Rosebury? The reason I'm asking is because I'm in Palmerston as well uh, and because no one owns this podcast and uh, we're not beholden to anybody, we can say what we'd like. Mm-hmm. And I just want to give a big shout-out to our mayor, Athena Pascoe-Bell, who does amazing things Ooh. in Palmerston, especially to, uh, in, in relation to fixing crime and dealing with the issues and the fallout from that. And we have an election coming up next month, and I just want to give a shout out to Athena Pascoe Bell, and I hope she gets re-elected. <laughs> ha. Okay, well, and that uh, non-sponsored comment about the re-election <laughs> of our mayor is entertainment purposes only. Um, Adele, I've got two questions to ask you before you go. Okay, one relates to something that that I'm. Uh, using more and more in in my space in the digital marketing industry. Now, when it comes to uh, literacy and creativity and reading and writing and the things that you're really into, um, what's becoming a lot more prevalent is AI technology. Mm. And I'm just interested, it could be a personal view, it could be a, a uni view, but, you know, where you see that going and, and is it something that's frowned upon or, or looked upon favourably in, in your community? Um, yeah, I mean, look, <clears throat> when we think about the humanities and the arts, um, because a lot of the, the theory and the principles are in, entrenched in, um, you know, classical knowledge, Mm. Um, that, you know, the, the new world that we live in, which is a digital age, um, you know, 
a lot of art scholars have had to think about, well, how do we align ourselves now as becoming digital humanities experts? Mm. Um, and thinking about that and as we evolve to become more digitalized, technologized, technologized are we going to need to be reminded what it is to be human and that's what the humanities do they provide Mm. provide us with an understanding of what it is to be human in a a globalized multicultural world and how are we going to continue to solve new problems now with the help of ais yeah um and one of the biggest problems i face is marking so if an ai can do that for me yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I've just recently acquired a piece of software that essentially will create content for you for anything you want and not just mm. create the content, but mm. uh, if we look specifically, say, to a website, which requires content, but it also requires titles and certain mm. type of text and, you know, things interwoven within that, it'll do it for you from top to bottom in just a matter yeah. of mere minutes. And it's it's as though it was written, you know, by someone who knows what they're talking about. Wow. I mean, yeah, robots are writing poetry too. Yeah, right. Um, but there's something that robots can't do and that is have empathy. Yeah, it's Humans often can talked do about. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's, and, it, it's mm. true. And the freedom, well, the freedom to think for themselves, I suppose, is subjective, mm. but it, yeah, you're right. It, it, you're absolutely right. Look, the so last we can mm, study po- we can study poetry by robots, yeah. but we study it for for human meaning. Yeah, yeah. And 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 with a level of empathy that the yeah. robots necessarily don't have. Yeah, oh, that's true. And look, the last question I have for you is: um, it's a little closer to home, but given again your background in what you do. How do you feel about people who refuse to read books these days and consume them in audio format? Oh, fine. I think if you're you're listening to stories, like what you guys are doing is a form of um, authoring storytelling. Yeah. You know, um, it's wonderful because we just have so much to pack into our day and if you can listen to a book or a podcast on your way to work while you're cleaning the house, Mm. Um, you're still being gifted with that opportunity to explore ideas, move into alternate worlds, and you don't even have to be stoned to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Leon's ears. Yes, well, I've got, I've got a smart ass for a co um, host, right? <laughs> I just want you to know, Adele, while you were talking and while you mentioned Carpenteria, I went, ding, I've heard of this book before. And I got on my app uh, called Borrow Box, which I highly recommend anybody that um, um, lives in Australia that uh, has access to a public library sign up for. You don't even have to go to the library to do it. You can download the app. You can sign up to the library from where you, wherever you are. And I just borrowed the book. <laughs> wow. The audio book. Look at that guy, hey? So you will I, love that. If I, only we were in video format as well, Leon. <laughs> if if only you would actually read or listen to books, Pete. I actually thought if only you would upload them to YouTube, then we would. <laughs> Personally, I still love my the hard copy with the desert uh, stains. 
Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's that's special, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I got a, I love audiobooks. Oh, honestly, so much Adele, and it's all free from the library. You know, um, I, I actually saw Archie Roach's book read, read by him as well, which you know might be of interest Ooh. to you. Mm. It's won Gorgeous. a lot of awards. Mm. Yeah. So. Um, you can listen to it in your sleep. You can listen to it in your car. It's mm. it's uh, it's been it's it's an astounding thing. I have to say, the library. I have not been to a public library for years, mm. but through audiobooks, um, I'm there almost every day now. And that's um, perfect during lockdown. Mm. Correct. I'm just going to pull you up on that one, Leon. We actually went to a public li- library not that long ago for the gaming weekend. That was like two years ago, wasn't it? You said said years. (laughs) Yes, that's fairly recently. Yeah, not to borrow books, though. We didn't borrow any books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, Adele, we'll really appreciate your time telling us your story and uh, good luck with your trip to Alabama. And I reckon we definitely will get you back on when you get back and tell us some of your stories. Let's do that. Yeah, I'll I'll start a diary and I'll... I'll call it Le- stories for Leon and Pete. Oh, yeah, awesome. yeah, <laughs> and uh, we want to hear we want to hear your Southern Alabama drawl when you come back. Yeah. Okay, I'll work on that. <laughs> well, that was Adele Sefton Rouston on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.